You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. One of the things about uh, talking about meditation-based attachment repair is that it, it does require that you practice and it does require that you practice in a specific way and so we've developed a curriculum around meditation practices that are oriented toward uh, providing the insights that you need in order to understand your attachment conditioning. Uh, my teacher Shinzen Young is interested in developing a meditation strategy which he calls Toe or Theory of Everything Meditation. Um, that he doesn't uh, like Dharma maps in the sense that uh, depending on how you practice, you tend to have those insights. I don't know if you are deep enough into your meditation practice to know that each of the practices is designed to provide a particular insight. And so depending on how you practice, you're likely to have those insights. If you use the Theravada map, you're likely to have the insights that are embedded in the way that you practice. And it moves along, say, if we were to use the, the common map for that, that Mahasi Sayadaw developed the progress of insight the first stage is you develop a sensitivity to the sensing experiences, then you notice the conditionality of each moment leading into the next moment. You begin an examination of anatta and each and dukkha, so not self, impermanence, and dukkha. Dukkha is a word that's often translated as suffering. My teacher Shinzen translates it as unsatisfactoriness and my teacher Dan Brown translates it as reactivity. I tend to like the reactivity because or even unsatisfactoriness too um, even if you become fully enlightened you're still in a human body that reacts to everything that it connects to and you still have to deal with all of those the constant reaction that happens. You have the capacity to sense you have an object that can be sensed by that capacity and if they meet contact happens and consciousness arises out of that it's never going to be different than that uh, until you're dead and then who knows what happens um, you have the capacity to sense you have your five senses in Buddhism we also have mind you probably have a familiarity with mind but in the West we don't consider it uh, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and mind create this sensing experience. In Buddhism we call that ultimate reality. And then ultimate reality is fixated into conceptual reality. What we want to really uh, open up is this examination of the process that ultimate reality is con converted into conceptual reality and in particular the fixed views and we're organizing this around examining attachment views that lead to these fixed views. There's the early mentalizing process that you would learn in a dyadic experience with your primary caregivers and then there's the later uh, 
mentalizing or lack of mentalizing that develops in your actual relationship experience with other people. When you're born, your brainstem is intact, you have a partially formed midbrain or limbic system and the, the cortexes uh, are not that well developed. The right one has a distinct advantage over the left one. Right is procedural memory, left is autobiographical memory, and I'm really dumbing down neuroscience, so don't get mad at me for being oversimplifying, okay? It's just easier to talk about that way. The, the brain does parallel process, I admit that, but I'm gonna talk about it metaphorically so that you can get a sense of it. In the beginning of life, it's all procedures. We're just learning how to do things and we don't associate a, a narrative to them or even remember that that's what's happening. So this early interaction, this early exchange with other people is a procedure that's learned and is unconscious. In Buddhism, the understanding that there is no intrinsic, ongoing, solid, constant sense of self is what we're talking about here that autobiographical memory is distinct from procedural memory. When you came over here today, did you uh, consciously in indicate eat to each muscle what they needed to do in order to walk your legs in here? Probably you didn't do that, right? You probably were thinking about something entirely else and you still managed to walk in here and find your chair and sit down, right? The walking part is procedural memory and the what you're thinking about is autobiographical memory and they're separate systems. Can you, do you ever have the experience if you drive a car of driving yourself home and not remembering driving yourself home because you were caught up in the song on the radio or thinking about something, right? This is this insight into self and no self, right? The self is not solid, it's not in charge, it's not doing everything. It's existing separately from that process, that spontaneous beingness. And this is the insight into the self that we want you to have. Uh, so all of those, the, all of that self-talk, all of that self-referential experience that arises, arises and exists independent of all of the rest of the activities, or as a part of, maybe is a better way of describing it. But it doesn't mean that everything it says to you about yourself is true. And so we need to begin to understand uh, that it can be wrong. Our sense of self and our experience of ourselves can be wrong. Uh, and it needs to be questioned and examined. Impermanence. This one is an interesting conundrum because if you really pay attention, nothing lasts. The sentence I just finished didn't last. The, 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 an hour ago didn't last. Nothing lasts. When you look in the mirror, do you notice that the body is aging? That it's different than it was? You're no longer a child. Uh, some of us are no longer youths. <laughs> no longer uh, middle-aged. Some of us are old uh, and that that keeps going and that we have this capacity to fuzz those uh, details out. Um, 
we're going to grow old, we're going to get sick and we're going to die and there's nothing we can do about it. Can you imagine your own death or do you imagine instead that you're going to live forever? If you think that you're going to live forever, then there's a later that you can do this stuff in. And I really want to assure you that there's no later. You need to do it now. Uh, don't put it off. Whatever it is that you want to do, don't put it off. There's no tomorrow, necessarily. There's only this moment over and over again, this moment over and over again. And to really come deeply into that understanding, because it puts you at this crossroads. In one direction is this engagement of the activity of life, and in the other direction is nihilism. Well, if nothing lasts, nothing matters. And I really urge you to go to the left in the direction of engagement and not uh, into nihilism. In order to do that, you have to be able to find meaning. You hear me harping on meaning, but we, we live in a society that distracts uh, and uses distraction as the main way of coping and being. And if you allow yourself to, to, to get too distracted, uh, the whole life will go by and then it will, you won't be able to do it. But you're here in this room now, which means you can do it now, right? You get, you get it? So you're exploring no self-impermanence, unsatisfactoriness or reactivity, and then you come into a place where you see actually that this process of ultimate reality and conceptual reality rock back and forth. It's a constant sensing, creating the reality, sensing, creating reality, sensing, creating reality. And then you pull all of that apart. This is again the Theravada map and it all dissolves and you see that the sensing experience, that unfixated vibrating nature of sensing experience can be made into anything. You can form conceptual reality in any way that your conditioning allows you to, and it can be wildly off. And so in some sense, these early attachment conditionings create these fixed views that are very distorting of the way that you create reality. And we really want you to get in there and pull that apart so that you can be in the conditions of the present moment and see them for what they are, and then recognize the opportunities that's there so that you can take that now if you want to, even though as a child your, the restrictions that were imposed on you by the, the family system and the caregivers were actual and they did limit you. This is not to say that there aren't limits, that there are, but you also may not be seeing the potentials in the present moment and because you can't see them and recognize that they're there, you don't take them. And then that creates this, this flow of, of, of karma. If you walk into a room and you think that nobody will like you, do you behave differently than if you walk into the room and think everybody would be happy to meet me? How does that distort behavior? When you look at somebody and, you, and they smile at you and you think that they're trying to exploit me, they're trying to harm me, does that affect how you behave to them rather than seeing, oh, they think that I'm interesting, I should go exchange with them. And so in, in really being able to see how these views affect 
the, the actions we take or the karma that we create, we can begin to change them. In the beginning with this relationship with your primary caregiver, what develops is called epistemic trust. It's a sort of a belief that the person is telling you the truth and a belief that what they're telling you is meant to be helpful to you. Secure people operate on this basis. Um, and if there's a demonstration that the, that person is not telling them the truth or not intending to be helpful to them, they don't lose that sense that people are trustworthy they think that that person is unreliable and then they move towards somebody else who they think is reliable. But if your epistemic trust has not developed or has been broken at some place along the line, you don't give people the benefit of the doubt to see whether or not they're trustworthy and you don't allow intimacy with them because you have to reserve, you have to guard yourself. If you don't allow uh, somebody to be safe, you don't ever let your guard down, so you never actually relax. You never really actually settle unless you're alone. <coughs> and even then you may worry. So you don't actually ever rest, right? So you don't actually ever recharge so that you can then go out uh, and explore. I like to talk about this in terms that uh, are um, guided by self-interest, our own self-interest, so that uh, I can get you to understand that you get stuff out of doing this. The secure, mutually beneficial relationships are the best way for you to get what you need, the resources that you need so that you can pursue your exploration, your solo exploration, which is where you find meaning. That's the best way to do it. Even though on face value, when you look at it, it's much more resource intensive to have those kinds of relationships than it is to have relationships that are not uh, intimate. But you are in better shape to go explore and, and resources are easier to come by in those relationships because you have somebody who will catch you and recharge you and is in, interested and delighted in you. So, working with uh, this way of practicing, we've organized these meditation approaches uh, to explore your emotional regulation system, to explore your attachment uh, conditioning, and then to support uh, being uh, uh, also, mm, let me finish the list, to work with the somaticized or trauma experiences that may be stored in the body and to release them so that you can then be in relationship to someone else. <coughs> Um, so I'm going to talk about emotions for a minute. We have a window of tolerance of the intensity of emotion that we can tolerate and, uh, and if the emotional response to the present moment falls within that window, it just rolls through those emotional experiences. But if we react to a, a condition in the present moment and there's a spike of emotional intensity that exceeds that window, then we have a, a, an emotional event that needs to be regulated and the body-mind will move to regulate it. 
almost all experiences that we have are already associated with a strategy for emotional regulation and you've learned these strategies primarily in the early conditioning relationship with your caregivers and in your family system. You regulate your emotions the way that your family system regulates emotions because you learned that. And you learned it early in the, that period of time when the procedural memory was dominant and the autobiographical and critical thinking wasn't available to you to evaluate whether it's a good system or not. And you've been using them so long you just use them and you may not even notice that you're using them. And mostly we do it through thinking. The, do you, are you aware that there's a, a thought track that runs in the background? It's like a commentary on your whole life almost continuously. Everybody able to pick that up? And is that a loving, kind, supportive voice that's running in the background the whole time? Or do some of you have this sort of self-judgment, this criticism? It is much easier to run kindness and love and support and interest uh, because the chemicals that it takes the body-mind to produce those are less debilitating than anger and stress and blame and all of the other stuff. So we're looking at this from this bio biological point of view. If all day long you've regulated yourself by being angry, at the end of the day you're going to be exhausted from all of the chemicals it took to create that experience of regulation. Whereas if you regulated yourself through joy and happiness and love and kindness, you're going to have a whole different experience at the end of the day in, in terms of energy. If you are able to release the, tra the traumatic, somaticized emotional experience, all of the energy that it takes to hold that is going to be available for something else, whereas if you don't, then so much of your life energy is going to be consumed holding up that, holding the trauma, holding the old experiences. And so we really do want to work hard in the, the uh, uh, area of emotion, really figuring out what it is that we're feeling and how to regulate it in a, in a positive way. Adult relations require the capacity to hold intense emotions. I talked earlier about people's capacity to disappoint and if you can't hold the intensity of disappointment you can't be in the relationship. If somebody goes out and explores and they come rushing back and they're just a total wreck if you can't hold an, a compassionate container for them that tolerates the intensity of that emotion, either they need to start limiting their exploration so they don't come back to you, or you have to withdraw from them because you can't tolerate the intensity of it. So we really want to get to a place where we can tolerate very intense, robust emotional experience, and that opens up our capacity uh, toward this spontaneous beingness aliveness. And that if we can't do that, if we're brittle or, or uh, the intensities have to be muted or really low, that's imposing a limit, a hard limit on what we can do, not only in terms of our own exploration, but what we can accept from other people. What would it be like if you had a network of people that you could go out into the world and you could get completely obliterated by your exploration and come back and they just have a container that can contain you so that you can reorganize and then continue the encouragement to go back out and explore some more. So that's making sense, I'm hoping. 
So we're, we look at this process of identifying and having really good sensory clarity around what our emotions are and then examining the way in which we regulate the emotion. And then if we're using afflictive strategies to regulate the emotion, suppress those. I know in Western psychology, suppression doesn't have a, a good reputation, but in Buddhism, in fact, there's five levels of suppression and the last one is to annihilate the experience. You don't want to allow your mind to beat you up all day long. You want to suppress that, right? You want the mind to be encouraging all day long, to be joyful all day long, to be, you know, go for it. I tell this story because it's, this is very typical of what I'm talking about. I uh, go to the gym and work out because I like the way it feels after I work out. I don't particularly enjoy the experience of working out. In fact, I don't like the experience of working out. It's just unpleasant, the whole thing. <laughs> but I really like the way that I feel, generally speaking, if I work out regularly. So I was going to the gym, and I was lifting my weights and going, oh, this is awful. These are so heavy. I hate this. What am I doing this for? This sucks. And my friend said, that may not be the best approach. Maybe you should try something like, I can totally do this. I can totally do this. So I go to the gym and I say, I can totally do this. Doesn't affect whether I can lift the weights or not, right? Sometimes I can totally do this has me way up high on the weights that I can't even really lift. But uh, I'm now doing my hour long workout in a half hour. It's the same workout, which meant that 25 minutes of my workout was overcoming my own resistance to doing the workout, right? So you may notice that your own mind is pr producing the resistance for you going for it and that you can change that so that instead of it pushing up resistance to doing it, it pushes up encouragement to go, to go. And we want to see how we're doing that and track that. This is the Vipassana meditation around emotional regulation. We want to look into the body and see whether we're holding emotion, somaticized emotional experience, and then begin to release it. This is an arduous and unpleasant task. Uh, it may be that you've gotten this far in your life and not done it if you have these emotional centers because it's an arduous and unpleasant task. It is, however, greatly rewarding to release this somaticized emotion because the more of it you release, the less energy you need to use to hold it. Uh, when we become overwhelmed, the system has a sort of safety valve in it. If an emotional experience becomes too overwhelming to tolerate, the body-mind represses it and puts it, put, puts it into somaticized emotional holdings. Well, the only research I've seen is that it, it tends to be located in fascia, so that it doesn't really correspond to muscles or organs. You'll notice, a con most people notice that it's a contractive energy that occasionally releases emotion. You can go through a process of releasing this experience. And in releasing it, get all of the energy that you've been using to hold it, and then use it for other things. And it, it is an enormous amount of energy if you have a lot of uh, somaticized emotion. And it's basically learning to sit with it. 
if you don't have good clarity around somaticized emotional experience, it arises and you associate it with the conditions of the present moment. So let's say somebody does level two disappointment and you, you're feeling sad about that at level two, but it resonates with old sadness and that resonates at level five. If you don't have good clarity that the old stuff and the new stuff are, are happening at the same time and they conflate, you're accusing your person of disappointing you at level seven. And they're confused because they're seeing it's clearly only level two disappointment. <laughs> I fucked up, but not that bad. Uh, <laughs> then you demand of them that they resolve level seven disappointment and the best they can do is resolve level two because that's all that's happening in the present moment and then you have this old old sadness circulating and then you look for explanations in the present moment for why you would be sad in the present moment and it diminishes everything that's happening whereas it's the old stuff and if you have clarity you can allow that old stuff to release in the background and still have the joyfulness of the present moment that making sense. Um, <coughs> I'm going to go through Dan Brown's uh, description of the f of the function of secure relationships. Uh, it's a it's one of the the maps that we use. Secure relationships operate on a basis of reliability. That's the, the ground. Reliability to the point that the person that you're in relationship never worries about whether you're going to show up or not, never worries about whether you're going to do the thing they say or not. If you just do it so consistently that the thought never arises. If you say you're going to do something and they just assume that it will happen because you're so reliable. This is something to pay attention to because not all of us are reliable in that way. And you, you, your ticket into secure relationships is developing your capacity to be reliable and it requires two things. That you don't say that you're going to do something that you're not going to do and that you do everything that you say you're going to do or you provide uh, a, a good enough circumstance why you didn't do it. People who function insecurely think a good excuse for why they don't do it is the same as doing it. And I want to assure you it's not, <laughs> right? You need to show up for people. And you need to show up for them reliably so that they don't worry about whether you're going to do it or not. Because if, they, if somebody pegs you as unreliable, all of the intimate exchanges won't be on offer to you because people only offer them to other people who are reliable. So you have to pay attention to yourself and how you show up. Don't overpromise. Uh, don't uh, manipulate. Manipulation, of course, is the promising of doing something that you, you're not going to do. Just be straight about that. And that, that is the ticket to secure functioning relationships. And if you don't have it, you won't be able to, to get into them. And then the other thing is that you agree to be in a mutually caring relationship. That is to say, you agree to take care of the other person, not in the way that you want to take care of them or in the way that you think is a good way to be taken care of, but in the way that they want to be taken care of. What's important about this is to understand that 
you have to be able to enjoy taking care of them in a way that they want to be taken care of or you'll experience it as a chore that you don't want to do. So one of the things to do is to pick people who the way that they like to be taken care of is something that you enjoy doing or can enjoy doing so you don't mind doing it for them. Um, and then you need to pay attention to whether they reciprocate or not because if they don't reciprocate enough, you're eventually going to resent them for it, right? So there's a balance there. But it really needs to be something that you enjoy doing or you won't do it regularly enough. You'll avoid doing it. It's just the nature of the human condition. When you have both of those things, the reliability and the mutuality, what develops between the two people is a sense of safety, a deep felt sense of safety. I can show up here and I'll be safe. Attachment is always this dimension between exploring and rushing back for safety when you feel threatened. And so this piece about having somebody that you feel safe with, that you can rush back to when you need to, is fundamentally important. If you never feel safe with people, then we need, this is the place to begin to explore. How could I feel safe? How can I reveal myself enough, ask for enough of what I want so that I actually can begin to feel safe? What happens a lot in insecure relationships is that you just offer the whole epistemic trust peace to the other person and then the first disappointment in the other person is like they've dropped it and it shatters and this isn't what secure people do what they do is they offer a little test a little piece and if the person passes it well enough they offer them another little piece and if they pass it well enough the pieces get bigger and bigger until through an actual history of experience with the other person over a period of time they demonstrate that they're trustworthy those of us who have a heightened sense of abandonment terror have a really hard time doing it piecemeal. We just want to have immediate continuous proximity so that we never have to be abandoned again. And this isn't really going to be good for either person because then you have to abandon your solo exploration. We want to have time, energy, and resources for our solo exploration so that we can find meaningfulness in our life and we don't turn to our partner to provide for us the meaningfulness that's not coming because we're not exploring, making sense. That felt sense of safety uh, means that you can attune to someone. Do you know the word attunement? I'm attuned to you. Can you tell that I'm attuned to you? That is my attention is on you and yours is on mine and we can track that that's what's happening. And now I'm not attuned to you, but I'm attuned to Amy. I'm attuned to Sam. I don't know your name. Huh? Danielle. Danielle. We're very sensitive to attunement. Everybody in this room knew where my attunement was by tracking it, right? Everybody can do that. At this distance, it's very easy to attune to somebody because the resolution of the human eye isn't sharp enough to be able to actually even track mo mo emotional micro-expressions. You can get a general sense of what the person is thinking and feeling by their external presentation, but you're not close enough to them to actually get a more intimate experience. At about three feet is where the eye can resolve enough to really track 
micro emotional expressions in other people's faces and you get a much richer detail of what they're thinking and feeling at that distance do you notice that you regulate the distance that people can get to you if you if you're uncomfortable because they're encroaching too much you move back and that's because you're you're providing protection for yourself in the ability to have somebody else read you we all live in urban environments so we're really most of us good at stilling the face you have to really be caught off guard to let a micro expression flash most of the time we just front you can mask your facial expressions even at, at a three-foot distance maybe like this but at this distance you can't mask your uh, fluctuations of the irises which are then trackable how many people do you let this close to you right following me not that many I would bet can you count them on, on your hand one hand where do you learn to read the fluctuations of irises you learn it in this dyadic relationship when you're an infant with your primary caregiver so if that was an open and a pleasant and rewarding exchange this distance isn't going to be such a problem to you but if it was troubled if it was difficult if it was frightening you're going to have a really hard time letting anybody get this close to you because you don't want them to see and you don't want to see what's happening. So the attunement piece is really important. How everybody here seems to be able to do it pretty well. Nobody is breaking off attunement. Um, but this is something to pay attention to. With attunement, of course, comes a rush of emotion, right? You let somebody get three feet to you, and it's much more emotionally intense than at this distance, right? At this distance, it's very intense for most people, right? Are you following me on this? Somebody's right here, right? How easy it is for you to look into somebody's eyes at, at a really close resolution so that you can see the fluctuation of their irises and not consciously know what that means but unconsciously know what it means because that's a procedural process not a conscious process and all of that information then floods into the system and there's often an emotional rise and if it gets too intense you break the attunement you look up to the left that's the, the instinctive neurological response to it what happens when you're in attunement to somebody and you see that they're they're looking they're breaking attunement right well how do you interpret that right that they can't they don't want to see you they don't want to know you you're too intense you're too much for them that could be an interpretation we want all of these things to be brought into consciousness so that you can see what you're doing and so that you can know what you need to do in order to hold this but attunement is the place where you can be authentically seen. In order to be authentically seen, you have to be willing to reveal yourself. That means you have to be willing to stay in this one foot away intensity and reveal what's actually happening to you in an unguarded way. What you get out of that is that you're known. We as human beings want to be known just a, a force of nature that compels us to this we want to be seen we want to be known we want to be accepted and if you can let somebody be this close to you and see you in a completely authentic way and you know 
uh, and you feel known by them and they stick around, your abandonment anxiety just drops off. You see what I'm saying? And if you don't, it stays there because they could. They could see you and leave if you don't, if you're not willing to reveal yourself. So you don't really get any protection out of hiding. Even though the emotional intensity of it in the moment may be overwhelming. If somebody holds you over and over again, you can tolerate greater and greater intensities of being seen until you can be authentic in the experience. You can be perfectly authentic and because you have the history of them sticking around for that, you don't worry about them leaving you. And the, the more authentic you are and the less you keep secret, the, the less abandonment terror you feel. The more secrets you keep, the more, the higher the level of abandonment terror you feel most of the time. Is that making sense? The next level is emotional regulation, co-regulation with someone else. Are you aware that you emotionally co-regulate and that it's automatic and unconscious? Um, what I suggest you do is pay attention if you're hanging out with someone after 20 minutes, do you feel better? Do you feel the same or do you feel worse? If you can find somebody who in just hanging out with them for no, and not doing anything in particular, you feel much better, value that. That's highly valuable. <coughs> it turns out that somebody who could be very emotionally regulating for you, you could be very emotionally agitating for them. So it isn't a paired thing automatically. Somebody who you find very emotionally regulating and are drawn to has no effect from what you do for them and so they're not that interested or, they're, or you're agitating to them so that they actually don't want to be in relationship to you. But if you can find somebody for whom they're very regulating for you and you're very regulating for them, this is something of high value that you want to put energy into so that you can have that available to you so you can go out on your solo exploration and come back completely trashed and that they're just there and 20 minutes of, of hanging out with them with, for, with no special intervention, you settle and feel emotionally regulated. Making sense? You may not have known that this is a possibility and that you can pay attention to it, but if you begin to, to do that, then you'll see that some people are regulating and some aren't. It turns out it's not always the cool kids are, who are regulating, right? that you may find that people that have a great capacity to emotional, emotionally regulate you don't also have a lot of shared interest with you. It isn't, it isn't about interest, it isn't about content, it's about functioning. They still remain valuable because they have the capacity to emotionally regulate you. And if it's paired and it's shared, that's, that's really valuable and important and you should pay attention to it. The next level up is a felt sense of delight. That when you show up and they see you, they light up automatically with a sense of delight in your beingness, not in your doingness for them. Is that making sense? If you grew up in a secure household, 
you would know this and you would already value it because every time you showed up and you saw your caregivers, they lit up in delight just in your beingness without you needing to do anything. But if you didn't grow up in a secure household, then the conditions around delight would vary depending on what uh, experiences you were having. We haven't talked much about the different attachment strategies, but in dismissing adults, the only way that they could really get attention from their caregivers was by offering an idealized view of the caregiver's care to the caregiver. This is a problem for dismissing uh, uh, adults in a sense that when they were a child, they knew the care was bad. But the only way that they could get attention or care from their caregivers was by modeling how great the care was. You understand the, the conundrum for that child. They have to get their, their caregiver to believe that they think that the care is great in order for them to get any care at all and they know that the care is crap. What do you do with that? As a child you suppress awareness that the care is crap and you get really good at idealizing other people. This is called seduction. And so you become adept at seducing. But you know that it's fake. So delight for somebody who's dismissing, has a dismissing attachment strategies is a manipulation, a device to get what they want. Very different from the authentic delight and beingness that arises from a secure relationship. People who grow up to be preoccupied don't really know from delight because they didn't, it wasn't a currency in their childhood. Uh, people who grow up to be preoccupied are infantilized. Do you know the term? Their, their, their normal development uh, opportunities uh, and difficulties are denied them so they don't develop that sense of competency that you might have. The parent, the caregivers restrict their exploration so they don't learn to explore. And really the only way for them to get care from their caregivers is to appear helpless. So they present themselves as helpless. Most of the time you can see right through it, you see that they're not helpless because they're not helpless. They're just presenting themselves as helpless to get care. But if you solve the problem that they're presenting for you, that means the care ends. So they pre present you with unsolvable problems. And then they, they double down that it's your moral obligation to solve the problem for them. And they presented you with an unsolvable problem. How delightful is that? <laughs> Do you just light up with delight when you see them coming because you know you're going to spend a half hour to a problem that you can't solve before you can extricate yourself out the, out the side door? So. And then people who grow up to be disorganized in adults, delight was used as a way of exploiting them. So they, they feel a sense of danger when somebody delights in them because they think that they're going to be manipulated and exploited in some way. Is that making sense? We want to get to this place where we can be delighted in, where we can see somebody else just light up with delight about us and that we can really take that in as pure delight. 
and then we want to develop our own capacity to delight in other people because it's so energizing. You've, you've known this uh, all your lives in a way. Have you ever gone into a restaurant and a group of people sit down and then all of a sudden they're just rambunctious and laughing and carrying on? That's this mutual sense of delight, the energy that comes from the sense of delight. Can you do that? So it's a skill, like all of these things are skills. If you don't have them or you're not good at them, you can train yourself to do them. And you can get good at them. And you need to if you want to have secure functioning relationships because these are vital components that have to be there. And then the last piece of secure functioning relationships is an understanding of the value of each other's solo exploration and your willingness to support that in the person. What does it mean when you support somebody's solo exploration? It means that they're going to leave you and go explore and then come back. But because you feel safe, you don't worry about whether they'll come back. In fact, you're interested in when they come back with what they've discovered in their solo exploration and you're willing to use some of the resources in the relationship to support their solo exploration as they're willing uh, to use some of the resources of the relationship to explore so that you can explore your solo exploration and that the coming together and the sharing of that exploration is vital energy to uh, the ongoing relationship is that making sense so that's one way to describe the dynamics of a, a secure functioning relationship. And it's also a map to compare to the way that you do it now. Are you somebody who's jealous and intentionally restricts your partner's exploration because you can't tolerate the separation? Are you somebody who uses all of the resources in the relationship for your own exploration and doesn't leave any for your partner to explore? Do you demand that your partner come with you on your exploration but not go with them on their exploration? These are all things to consider. Are you too afraid to leave the house to explore? And do you live alone? These are all, uh, these are all outcomes of the, the attachment conditioning. Not all making sense. Um, so what I thought we would do now um, is uh, some meditation practice, then we'll break at, at 11 for 15 minutes or so, and then I will talk about mentalizing in the next uh, segment, and we'll go to one. Um, normally when we say an hour for lunch, everybody's late, so I normally say an hour and a half for lunch or an hour and 15 minutes and then we'll come back uh, and um, I'll talk more about emotions in the, the afternoon. Does that sound like a plan? Um, I did want to also mention Donna. The, we're offering, I'm offering this class on a Donna basis um, and I, I like to do it in the morning um, in case people don't come back. but. Uh, in order for me to, to fly up here and hang out for a couple of days and, and teach the class uh, costs money for me. 
and we're offering this uh, freely to you and I know that we've sent out some Donna stuff on the website and, and we do also want to support the center where these kinds of teachings are possible so um, pay attention to that Dana is a practice of generosity, which is actually the opening of the whole meditation path, this practice of uh, opening to the possibilities, this generous possibilities that there's enough. So please make that consideration uh, whether you stay for the whole day or not. Today, I'm, I, I normally start this uh, training with a concentration meditation, but I'm feeling um, like we should do some forgiveness practice instead. And so I thought we would start that this morning. Um, forgiveness practice is a Western practice, which is meant to be the opening into the heart practices to loving kindness practice, kindness practice. In, in the East, they don't really have forgiveness practice, it's considered part of the, the metta or loving-kindness practice. But they have a different way of identifying. They identify with the family system as the primary and the individual as the secondary, and we don't do that here. The individual is primary and the family system is secondary sometimes. Their family systems, because the, the, they aren't as affluent as we are in most cases, require mutual collaboration on survival that those of us with so much privilege don't necessarily need. We can go out in the world and collect enough resources to take care of ourselves and we don't need the contributions of our family systems. So it's important to um, understand that uh, because this orientation is so individualistic already that uh, we open to the possibility of the group. In the East, you're in the group and then they want to extricate you from the group and have, a, have you have a sense of your own separate beingness. So there's the, the practices don't line up exactly the way that might be useful. We are going to begin talking about conditioning and it's easy to get into a place of blaming your caregivers for the care that you received and the consequences that it, that it caused you. I said earlier that you have a 75% chance of finishing your life with the same attachment con conditioning or effect that you had at 10 months old. But so did your parents. So did the people that raised you. So maybe what we should be doing is blaming the grandparents for not solving the problem so that they conditioned their, your parents in the way that they did so that they conditioned you. But if we uh, accuse, je accuse your uh, um, grandparents, uh, their caregivers had a 75% chance of of handing off the attachment conditioning that they have. So maybe we should be digging up your great-grandparents and confronting them. But I'm sure that they would tell you that their caregivers had a 75% chance. <laughs> Most of the time, your caregivers loved you and wanted you to do the best for you and they instead did the thing that happened to them. It's a trick of the mind 
you're in a situation and the mind is looking for what to do in that moment and if you don't have an experience then it goes to the next best thing and so what happens is that you are the ch you're remembering when you were the child and what your caregiver did and you're taking care of a child and so you flip it and you become the caregiver and your child becomes you and then you do the thing that was done to you because that's what's in procedural memory and that was laid down before there was the autobiographical conscious or an, an, uh, the capacity to analyze whether that was a good approach or not and the stress levels are so high that the cognitive mind is off anyway and you just do the thing that was done to you and that's one of the reasons it passes down in such pristine order. But I want to open up the possibility of forgiveness for your caregivers and forgiveness also for yourself because uh, when you really open up this stuff and begin to see that so much of the so much of what your life is like now is is the result of the things that you've chosen even though the views that you had to choose from were so distorted you still made those choices and so we want to open this up and lay the need to blame and to lay the need for all of that anger aside so that we can just see the way that it is now and then move to take the actions that need to be taken so that we can move into a more secure place of functioning. Is that making sense? So the long form phrases are uh, for any harm I may have caused others knowingly or unknowingly through my thoughts, words and actions I ask for forgiveness. Uh, for any harm uh, caused me by others knowingly or unknowingly through their thoughts, words and actions I offer my forgiveness as best as I'm able and for any harm I may have caused myself knowingly or unknowingly through my thoughts, words and actions I offer forgiveness as best as I am able. But I think that it's better in terms of concentration to use concise phrases, short phrases. So uh, we're going to do an easy meditation where you're simply repeating the phrases forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself. Forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself. Is that clear? Forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself. So let's just do that. I'll give some further guidance as we go. So settling into the body, this is a heart practice, so there's no need to hold the posture still. You want to be in a relaxed and comfortable position. It's okay to move. But it's still a formal period of practice, so you don't want to allow yourself to get pulled away into thinking. You want to be able to stay with the objects of meditation. Always a good idea to do a quick inventory of the body as part of the settling in process. So starting at the top of the head, relax the scalp the brow, the eyes, the face. Let the jaw go slack, relaxing the tongue, straighten the spine, balancing the head. 
Relax the shoulders. Just let the arms hang down, arranging the hands comfortably. Arrange the legs comfortably. Just let the breath go in and out as it will, no effort to control it. And just take a moment to expand and contract with the breath. So we're going to do a kind of wide open forgiveness practice, intending the meaning of the phrases and repeating them continuously internally. What you may notice is that different thoughts and feelings arise in relationship to this. If you notice that episodes of blame, resentment, anger arise, Offer forgiveness in the context of that thought. But pay particular attention not to get pulled too much into the content. Just let them come and go in the background as you're focusing on the meaning of the phrases in the foreground. Forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself. Forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself. Forgive me. I forgive you, I forgive myself, forgive me. I forgive you, I forgive myself, forgive me. I forgive you, I forgive myself. Continuously repeating the phrases, wide open.
you may notice as you're doing the practice that one of the phrases stands out and has more meaning than the others. So modify the practice using the phrase that corresponds to what the experience of the mind is in the moment. Sometimes we get into a mode where we blame ourselves for everything. It doesn't matter objectively whether that's how responsibility should be divided, just that that's how the mind is. So maybe the phrase, forgive me, has more resonance. Maybe we have a tendency to blame others and so the anger goes in that direction, in which case use, I forgive you, I forgive you. Maybe we have a tendency to blame ourselves, in which case I forgive myself has more resonance. Choosing whichever one makes the most sense. Or continue with all three.
forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself, 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 